Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the OIG Roundtable. We are one short this week. Matt Kachansky is on much-needed PTO for the week. He'll be back next week. So I've got with me my two of the three uh, compadres. I've got Wade McFall or McFowl, depending upon where you are in the country and how you say it. Retired assistant special agent in charge from the L.A. field office, now a manager on our SIU investigative team. And Jason Eisenbrand, retired, I keep saying this, but you're like on chapter three, retired uh, senior executive from HHSOIG, and then the retired Northeast UPIC director and our special director in charge on special projects. And I am still Eric Rubenstein, the senior director of litigation, fraud, waste, and abuse here at Advise. <clears throat> so this week we want to talk about, you know, it was an interesting twist of events that occurred uh, a little bit ago. Um, there was a press release that was put out uh, on the conviction of a provider uh, out of Maryland for essentially upcoding of E&M claims relative to COVID. The provider had been submitting claims at the level four office visit in conjunction with COVID testing. And the press release talked about the fact that some of the evidence um, that was used to, to convict this provider included some statements that the provider made regarding the fact that these patients were coming in for COVID testing and there was nothing very technical about the visit. Uh, it was fairly straightforward and he was instructing his staff to kind of just do the basic <clears throat> and then do the and do the COVID test. And so there was a three week trial provider gets convicted. Uh, and, you know, I wrote a uh, I wrote a post on LinkedIn. It got a lot of traction where people were talking about, um, you know, the upcoding issue and, and some of the things that were in the press release as as facts stated. Um, and it, it led to a bunch of conversations. It was interesting because. You know, level four services in the office setting, um, uh, you know, have to be well documented. And the fact that this provider was indicating that these people were coming in for essentially COVID tests. In some cases, they were asymptomatic. In some cases, they were going for swabs for to, to, to get a negative COVID test to show that they were, could, you know, return to work, school or for travel. And for those of you who are <clears throat> keeping up with the things that were going on during the PHE and in the <clears throat> ensuing release of the PHE to the world, uh, you know, there was a lot of what we call surveillance testing, right? People going in for COVID tests for work, school or travel. And the general feeling was that those weren't going to be reimbursed by insurance. They weren't going to be reimbursed under the HRSA uninsured program um, because it was part of, you know, the surveillance testing program that was out there. And so the question becomes, do you you know do you get to bill for an E&M when the patient is coming in strictly for COVID testing and even more so when they're coming in strictly for COVID testing when they're when they're asymptomatic? So the provider gets convicted after a three week trial and um, uh, the provider's attorneys appeal and it goes to the court of appeals and the court of appeals reverses the conviction um, and relies in what uh, amounts to a 91 page opinion. So obviously substantial, um, indicating that uh, the government uh, the government relied upon bad information. The conviction should not have withstood, um, should not stand because uh, E and M's are subjective and not objective. And so while the E and M has a potential of there being you know time or medical decision making, that the the courts applied this uh, standard of subjectivity 
that each one of these can you know kind of be seen in its in its own way and so it was it was reversed as a criminal charge so you know there's a whole bunch of things that come out as as discussion points one should this have been a criminal case should this have been a civil case should this have been treated as an administrative case should this strictly just have been treated as an overpayment um, you know, I worked on a bunch of these cases during the kind of coming out of the the PHE, where <clears throat> providers were generally billing for level three services and were fully documenting them as level threes. And so, are we talking about something that's a level a one level up code? Should this have been a level one? Um, you know, where you're just seeing a nurse or some lower level healthcare practitioner take some basic information, do the COVID test and send them on their way. But it does bring up this one thing that that came to mind for me. And Wade, I want to give you first because it's, you know, you're already spending your day doing your investigation, having to review a policy, having to review a plan contract, right? So from an SIU perspective, you've got to always think about like, what is the contract between the provider and the plan say? Uh, is there a contract? Is there no contract? Does the contract say that you're going to follow CMS guidance? Does the contract say you're going to follow some plan policy? Does the contract say that you're going to follow a Medicaid policy that's with the state? Is there some nuanced plan? So you're spending part of your day just trying to figure out what's the guidance I have to follow to determine whether or not this is a fraud, waste, abuse issue or not. Now the added wrinkle, which you and I were talking about before we started our podcast, which is as an investigator, do you now need to keep abreast of federal case law that comes out um, or potentially state case law that comes out regarding something? Do you now need to also think about uh, a medical board decision about a scope of practice issue? Like at what point does it become enough? But from a, from an investigator's perspective, does this add just another wrinkle into you know how your day is not spent investigating things and being a policy related expert. Yeah, well, I, I think first off, I think it, it's close to being impossible to really be able to go back and be, <clears throat> you know, up on all the new case law. Um, there's just not enough hours in the day. I mean, it's it, it makes sense to, you know, review. Uh, press releases and things of that nature to, to see the some of them that really do matter, but I think it boils down to one one of the things we talk to often, and that's that you you have to have the experience, kind of the um, the human intelligence to review stuff and make kind of make decisions and have discussions. When you're talking about, for example, like should this have gone civil or criminal, um, you know that's. You, you can't just go by like a flow chart and if if they answer yes to this and no to that, then it's going to be criminal. It's got to have some uh, some thought and some discussion. And I think this is another thing that we talked about before we started recording. I think one of the issues in this probably was, and I haven't read the whole case file, just the press releases, but the fact that he made those statements that you alluded to earlier, that they're here for one reason only, that's testing. It's simple and straightforward. We're not here to solve complex issues, but yet he kind of shot himself in the foot because he also informed his staff to bill at the highest E&M level. So if he would have just told them they're coming in just for straight, you know, testing and, and didn't say, I want this bill at a four, he it, he may not have gotten the conviction because that's, I, I got to think that that's what they base it on as opposed to saying, this is a civil case. We have these these kind of statements, which is 
the one thing we're always looking for, and that's intent. So that shows some intent there. So I think he that probably in the investigator's mind or the the whoever's making those decisions, it might have been a AUSA that brought it from a civil case to the possibility of being a criminal case. Um, so again, I think it's you, you have to have discussions on it. You have to have some some thought as to the pros and cons of going either way. Obviously, in hindsight, this maybe should have gone civilly. Um, I think the the judge even said that it was um, ambiguous and subjective rules should be used shouldn't be used for a criminal case. It should be more civil. Right. So I think it goes back to the same thing we talk about when we were talking about artificial intelligence and all stuff. You need to have the experience to review it and just kind of think through it and look at the pros and cons and kind of look as to which direction it should go, I think is what it boils down to. Yeah. I mean, you know, when when we when we all read that initial press release, I mean those facts were pretty audacious, right? The statements and billing it at the higher level and all of that. You know, the thing that gives me pause in looking back at the two press releases and all of this other stuff is the fact that it was a three week long trial means to me that there's got to be some other nuance there. Because if we're really talking about an instance in which some statements were made and the records didn't reflect that a level four was the appropriate code, like that's not a three week trial, right? You pick your jury in a day, you've got opening statements, you put on a couple of witnesses who did the audits and the reviews, you put up some empirical data. Um, on the on the any sampling that was done or payments that were made is this provider an outlier you get a case agent to provide some summary data and you're in I mean this is to me it looks like it's a one week maybe you know a little bit more than a one week trial so the fact that it went three weeks means there's got to be something else there I, I didn't get a chance to read the 91 page opinion of the court uh, on the appeal I'm going to do that I want to do a little bit more homework on this because it just seems like there's a little bit more of a nuance but you hit the nail right on the head that you know, these these subjectively interpreted things and E&Ms, I think, you know, we say it all the time to our clients here is that uh, an E&M is not an E&M is not an E&M. A gastroenterologist is going to document their E&M very differently than uh, an internal medicine doctor is going to document their their E&M. And so you've got to have people that are conversant in that. And it it certainly presents itself when you start making these arguments on the subjectivity. And obviously this ruling, while it's only going to be within the, you know, the circuit uh, where District of Maryland is, it, it certainly has the potential of having more expanded ramifications. So, Jason, I want to go to you because, you know, part of this is now from sort of that process piece. And, and I'll say, like, look, a law enforcement liaison within an SIU is certainly going to be a value for something like this, because when this case is kind of being worked and investigated and maybe some of these questionable facts are coming out and, you know, hey, is this really a one level upcode? Is it a three level upcode that that law enforcement liaison has the ability to have these conversations with the with the prosecutor on this case or something? But from that, you know, from that policy perspective from that process improvement in you know perspective um does the lack of something you know mean that it didn't happen or you know like everybody says if it wasn't documented it didn't happen but we all know in the healthcare space it doesn't mean it didn't happen right and so the argument is in this subjectivity like you know where do you draw this line of making these decisions because these decisions ultimately right we talked about the time, effort, and expense to investigate a $2,000 case 
could be the same effort and time that's required to investigate a million dollar case, right? So on a case like this, all that time, effort, and energy to result in a three-week conviction being overturned, ROI, opportunity cost, all of those factor in. Uh, well, thank you, Eric. And Weed, you had some uh, really excellent points. Uh, so first and foremost, I say that this has to do with resource management from an SIU perspective. So, you know, there there is another aspect to this when you're uh, like the OIG and it has a law enforcement operation and it has an obligation to protect the program, but to enforce the law. The SIU is about program integrity. And so, and it's a finite amount of resources. Is that the investigation that the SIU wants to spend its resources on? You want sustainable results, having something that just makes, um, you know, is in the column for a period of time until it gets, you know, rejected or found innocent or whatever else happens. Um, you know, there's no no value, no uh, good end to that expenditure of the limited resources. So what Wade said earlier about intent is obviously the key point. So whether and that would be for either OIG or uh, for an SIU. So is 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 it better to uh, go right to code red? and prosecute an individual for uh, you know, a one level upcoding, or do you wanna work a little bit more and give the person or group or whatever it is a chance to make it right or to, and to get right with the program, or you're gonna, again, expend those resources just because you think it's the right thing to do. Long and short of it is, um, you know, it's hard to sometimes keep providers in the networks. Uh, you, you know, they're providing a service to the community. Maybe they're not the best billers. It could be any number of things. I mean, I I joked earlier before the call that, you know, you go into the bank and there's no sign in the bank that says you're not permitted to rob the bank. You know, so there, you know, they whether they, they know the, the specific nuances of the billing code, well, then hire an expert, you know, hire a company like Advise to, you know, consult with you about the the ramifications of proper billing and, you know, how to mitigate that risk and things of that nature that it's all possible and part of a, you know, potentially a good business operation. But getting back to this, could the SIU, could the uh, law enforcement agency be smart about this? Is there an opportunity to allow the provider to do a self-audit. Like, hey, here's a concern. This is what uh, it looks like you did and didn't do. And this is the, and now you're educated. Thank you very much. Put them on a look back list because if they're doing it a second and third time later, you then have that, that intent piece that you're really looking for and can make it stick. So, uh, you know, I just say that it's, it's not to just say, oh, well, you know, it's just not that much, or they only, you know, had a thousand dollars in the cash drawer at the bank, so it's not that bad. That, that just doesn't work that way, at least in my mind. So uh, you might have to work a little bit harder to get that that um, situation made right. And then lastly, I just want to ask Wade, who had the look first, the the beard and dark glasses and hair? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. 
following your lead. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like looking in the mirror, I'm sure. Um, yeah, you know, Jason, you bring up a good point, which is sort of this self-directed TPE, right? So the targeted probe in education, you send a letter to the provider and say, hey, do a self-audit and let us know what those results are, right? And, and that's a piece of the puzzle. And, you know, we were talking before we did the recording, we worked on a project here recently where um, the provider got caught up in an Office of Evaluation and Inspection review. Uh, OE and I did a study on facet joint injections, and the general feeling was that the general policy was that you can do no more than five uh, facet joint injections in a rolling 12-month period for, for a patient. And this one provider uh, was the subject of one of these studies. It's a strict liability case. He had done more than five on, on many of his patients. And OSIG, Office of Counsel to the Inspector General, sent him a pre-demand letter looking for double damages. And it was a strict liability. Well, while this was going on, CMS went to the MAX and directed the MAX to send letters to all of the providers who had done more than five of these uh, or, you know, or appeared to have done them and said, do a self-audit, refund the money and, and kind of move on, right? And so, you know, this this happens where you, you kind of say, hey, we see this as a problem. Here at Advise, we did that for years with one of our payer clients. What they would want us to do is when we identified a provider who was an outlier for certain services, it was like, send them a letter, uh, kind of like a shot across the bow. Hey, you're, you're an outlier for this and we're gonna give you three months or six months to recalibrate your billings. If your billings still remain as an outlier, you're gonna be the, the subject you know, of an audit. So yeah, there's there's a lot of pieces. So wait, I wanna go to you for the last piece of this because obviously from an investigative perspective, I look at this and I say, well, geez, I've got witnesses who have said these statements, whether they're orally in writing, whatever it may be. Um, he's clearly an outlier on these level fours, right? From the data, that's probably what got him you know, caught up in this. And almost, I would say, if I'm an investigator, there's two courses of action. One is you do a probe sample of records. You don't have to make this super invasive. You've got witnesses that are saying this is what he said, right? Clearly, maybe there's emails from it, but we've got statements from people that he said this. I don't think that there was anything that said that it was denied that it was said. But let's say all that is true. You've got a couple of courses. You could look at no medical records whatsoever and just say, just based upon these witness statements, right? That's the super shortcut. You could take the other end of the spectrum, which is to do a statistical sample of records, pull a bunch of records, interview a bunch of beneficiaries and members, go out and do this very intensive investigation. Or you could do something in the middle, which is, you know, get five or 10 records, confirm that the things that people were saying are relative to the documentation. Hey, these are all level fours interview a few people. There's like three or four different ways you can go about doing it. And not to say that any one is right or wrong. A little bit of it is how much do you want to spin your wheels, right? And and this is one of those instances where it could be a million dollars, it could be $10. The course of action doesn't necessarily need to, to differ, right? It's just a matter of what's your, what's your uh, you know, what's your thought process and where you get to making that determination. I think if it were me, I would have looked at maybe a handful of records, had them audited, and then made a determination on, you know, where we're going to go. But, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think I would, and again, this gets back to having somebody with experience kind of walk through it. What are my options? What's going to be the fast track? What's going to be the best option? I don't think I would do a bunch of 
member interviews on this just because I, I feel like in this day and age where most of them are done telephonically, they're just they just don't produce as much as the good old, you know, knock on the door and have a conversation with them. But I think also those interviews are trying to lead up to the types of statements that we have in this case. So I, I think the statements by the doctor to his staff kind of trumps anything you're going to get from um, member or beneficiary interviews. So I don't think I would go that route. I would probably do a probe sample just to to get a, an idea of what they were billing. But this is one that I think you, um, I don't think you need to spend hundreds of hours on this. I think I think having those statements is is huge. So again, I would I would just look at a probe sample and I would move forward with that the piece that you're always looking for that intent and build upon those statements. And like you say, hopefully there's uh, emails or some kind of documentation of that. But even if there's not and and you have several several employees saying this is what he told us at a meeting and if he's going to deny it. I think that's um, it's still pretty powerful. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't drag this out for weeks. I would I would pretty much go with what you have, maybe a quick sample to show kind right. of the, the pattern and go from there. Well, you bring up a good point about the member interviews. At the end of the day, if there's an allegation that the member didn't get the item or service or procedure, that's one thing. But, you know, what are these people going to tell you? The people are going to say to you, yes, I went to this doctor. I needed a COVID test because I was going back to work, school, travel. I was asymptomatic. I was symptomatic, whatever it may be. They're going to say, yeah, that's what I did. How long did you spend with them? I was there for 10 minutes or whatever it's going to be. They're going to tell you the things that are kind of self-evident from what the nature of the case is. So, yeah, there's there's something to be said about, you know, from an investigative perspective. Should you always talk to members and do patient interviews, uh, beneficiary interviews, or should you shortcut that? Right. I mean, that's a whole topic for another for another time, because that's always going to be ad hoc and, and fact based. So, uh, you know, I'm going to take a read. I, I want to see the ruling. I want to go into PACER. I want to look at some of the documents that were put up there. I want to see the indictment, because um, it is interesting to me when I first read the press release that, you know, this guy was, you know, where he is after the three weeks. And it seemed like from the facts of the press release, it was uh, it was the right decision. Um, but, you know, obviously on appeal, some some other things may have come out. You know, and kudos to the defense attorneys for attacking the E and M's as being the issue and the potential of there being this upcoding related, you know, matter. So, you know, stay tuned. We'll we'll see what happens with that. So, gents, it's winter. Keep warm. Particularly you, Wade. You're in the you're in the tundra. Yeah. So, uh, shovel often, shovel early. <laughs> it's always uh, it's always good seeing you guys. <clears throat> Again, if you're not getting our newsletter, please sign up for it. Uh, the OIG roundtable is uh, embedded within the newsletter each week, as well as recordings from our previous LinkedIn Lives are up on that. You can get a hold of us at hello at advisedvizehealth.com. Sign up for our newsletter. You can get our podcast on YouTube, on Spotify, uh, a few other services, uh, particularly with YouTube. Go on to YouTube. Just search for Advise Health or OIG Roundtable, you'll find all of our prior OIG Roundtables. And again, if anybody has any suggestions for topics or things that you'd like us to uh, provide some opinions or thoughts on, please let us know. Uh, and as always, we appreciate the support. Uh, and if you are not signed up to uh, meet up with us on LinkedIn, please connect up with any and all of us on LinkedIn where our content is also deployed. So as always, good seeing you guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next OIG Roundtable.